true. Um, and yet, um, you say, well, where's the actually meeting point of these things? God is a God of love and he's a God of wrath. Steve brought that to us the other day. So why is a God of love can be a God of wrath at the same time? Sort of two truths that we can't very easily hold together, and yet they're both true. And the Bible's full of things like that. Take, for example, the passage which we're going to look at this morning, which is Ephesians, which is a, a letter written by Paul to a, one of the early churches in Ephesus. And um, Paul essentially was unfolding how wonderful the church is. That's not the picture you get today, from the media or from wherever. People outside of the lively part of the church will say the church is a crutch that people have just to hold them up and give them support in their lives. But that picture has changed recently to the broken crutch. The thing that's crumbling and has no purpose whatsoever either in support, and that's, that's a picture. We have to remember that God has placed the world in men's hands. That's what he did. He said to Adam, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, look after it and care for it. And what's it done? What have we done? Made a mess of it. With all the understanding, with all the knowledge, with the intellect that we have, we just can't get it right. There's many good things, though, that are right. And good, improvements that have been made. Things that, through the church, have brought real good and blessed things to people. Education, started by Christians. The medical Christians who started those sort of things. And um, so many good things. And we come across a verse in the passage we're going to read this morning, that God has an intention in this world... That through his wisdom, everything will be concluded and brought together through the church. Now, as we look out today, we say, do we see the church that sort of powerful, that sort of great? And I think the general answer is no. But as Christians, we do know that the answer's there. There is a way. Absolute peace can be found in Jesus. In this letter to the Ephesians, a lot of it was about two groups of people, diversely opposite and different, even categorised by God himself as different, and he should bring them together to be one new man in Christ. So there's two opposites. You say, well, how, how can these two lots of people ever get on together? <laughs> and there's one way it can happen, and that's Jesus can be the person who brings them together. Yeah, Jesus can make a difference. Who is it that keeps true marriage on form and people together? It's Jesus. We can go through all the questions, all the difficult ones, and the answer will still come back to Jesus. We come across an interesting bit in our passage this morning where Paul is talking about God's intent that the manifold wisdom of God should be seen in the church. And whilst he's saying that, he said he's the creator of the world. <laughs> it's almost a throwaway statement, yet it's not a throwaway statement. 
that in creation the manifold wisdom and glory of God was seen because this was the hallmark of the fingerprint of God, creation. But when it comes to the church, he's saying a similar thing, that the church is the hallmark of God's fingerprint in the earth. It's that wonderful and it's that great. And it comes back to the fact that Jesus is building his church. Now I'm talking about the people, not the buildings. True church is only built through Jesus. True church is only built through Jesus. So let's read some verses from Ephesians 3. It's a short reading this morning. There are Bibles at the back if you want one to follow it. Iris said the other day that in Ephesians there's a sermon in every verse. So perhaps you ought to ask her to come up and do it, shall we? Three. So Ephesians 3, I'm in Matthew 3 at the moment, so I better be quick and move over. It's somewhere in this book. Here it is. Right, okay. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, and through to verse 13. For this reason, and we'll look at that in a minute, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, that's non-Jews, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, that's the good news of Jesus, the non-Jews, the Gentiles, are heirs together with Israel. And that means the true Israel. doesn't mean necessarily the Jewish nation, but it's all that God ever intended to be manifest of his glory in the earth and for eternity. The gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches in Christ. And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. 
That's our reading for today. Paul starts off this passage for this reason. That takes us back to a few verses before, so we're just going to read those few verses now, shall we? And if you go just back to chapter 2 and verse 19, he's talking here to uh, these people, who the Gentiles who had been brought to be one body with the Jewish nation, the, the true Israel of God, believers in Jesus. Verse 19, Consequently, you no longer are foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. You too means us. You two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The word rises, as we read there, means unimpeded growth. The word rises means unimpeded growth. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. Now, we might not see that overall in the earth. Today, there are about 7 billion people in the world. 2.1 billion of those are supposed to be Christians. That's about a third of the population. On statistics, it doesn't look very good, but God's not interested in statistics. And if we live by statistics in this world, we will find that they will severely let us down. They will not give us what we want, need to know. They are helpful in research, they're helpful in lots of other areas, but that doesn't mean that the church is dying out or has become a broken crutch. The church is God's beautiful thing in the earth. It's his amazing plan. You notice we read in that verse that his intent, that his wisdom might be seen in the church that the rulers and authority in the heavenly realms might see what's going on. So it's beyond here, beyond the earth, God is doing a great and wonderful thing. In 1942, Christopher Columbus... Yes, 1492. I am getting dyslexic, my children were right. He was just checking. Christopher Columbus sailed to the unknown world and he went out with coins in his pocket and they were inscribed with the words ne plus ultra, meaning no, nothing beyond. In other words, we've reached, we can't go any further, you know. Ne plus ultra also means um, that there's nothing better. Nothing better at all. And uh, he came back with all sorts of stuff he found in this unknown world. And he was so amazed, and the people were so amazed of all the fresh fruit and stuff, that he, wonderful spices and stuff that he brought back, that they actually restruck the coins. And re- they were embedded with the thing plus ultra, meaning more beyond. 
more beyond. We may see a church that we could put over the statement, we think there's nothing in it, or there's nothing, nothing better. But today, I just want to say, being part of the church is the one part of the most amazing thing. <laughs> the funny sort of thing is that if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you can't see it from outside, but once you're inside, you can see it. It's strange, that. But that's the way it is. Because Paul said in another letter, he said, the world by wisdom knew not God. The world through wisdom and understanding knew not God. So how can we know God? We have read this morning that people can become a dwelling place for God. So what does that mean? It means God's at home there. Dwelling place means that God lives there. So this morning, as I look out on people this morning, and the true church here believes in Jesus, God's living here. He presences himself where people are. There can be no greater thing than that. That's a tremendous privilege. Tremendous privilege, because it says here, Paul says, and in him you two are being built together, become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. In one another version, it says the habitation of God. What does it mean? It's a place, an environment where God is known, honoured, and worshipped. That's the habitation of God. He's known, he's honoured, and worshipped. That's not a situation you'll find in the general world outside in church. The true habitation of God is a place where he's known. I just want to ask you this morning, do you know him this morning? Yeah, a few weeks ago we had a, a family zone and um, I had a little article of how to get to Mount Everest. You know, it's more difficult to get to Mount Everest than it is to come to know God through Jesus Christ. Bible talks about simple faith in Jesus, we become a habitation for God. That's an amazing thing. We become a habitation for God. So it's a place where he's known, honoured and worshipped. It's where God is most at home. It's where he wants to be. Not a temple made by hands. The Bible says that the church is not a temple made by hands. It's a place where God lives by his spirit. Most amazing thing. Paul says this is a mystery. When God conjoins the paradoxical absurdities and releases a unique blend of power, we can only say amen. Whoever thought that Jew and Gentile could actually be at peace and live at peace? We've talked about world situations today where people aren't at peace. In Jesus, two absurd things can be brought together and they can be unique. That's happening all over the world. We don't hear an awful lot about it. So God brings things together. You know, we say about this habitation of God, 
we come to church and we, we stand in awe of God. That's one side of the coin. We, whilst we stand in awe of God, there's another side of the coin. There's another fact that we can be chums with God. You say, how do you hold these two truths together? I just want to read a little bit to you a book I started reading. The names and title of God are printed in another version of the Bible. And it says, the words Lord and God, when printed entirely in capital letters, represent the divine name Yahweh. That's the name for God. Yahweh is the personal name of the God of Israel. This name was known throughout the patriarchal times, but its significance, what it tells about God, who owns it as his name, was not revealed until the time of Moses and the Exodus. In the redemption of Israel and the overthrow of Egypt, Yahweh revealed himself as redeemer and judge. The revelation of his name has the same significance as when in developing friendship, we begin to use each other's first names. So how do we hold this tension between awe and familiarity with God? Well, just like that. God reveals himself as a God of power and honour, who we honour and worship and adore. But there is also God wants to give that sort of familiarity in friendship. And I think that's most wonderful. And God, and it's just to paraphrase it, it's God saying, I just want to hang around with you guys. I just want to be with you. The habitation of God. And yet you hold these two truths wonderfully together. You say, well, I, I un- probably understand them apart, but I don't understand them together. This is what you call a paradoxical absurdity, you know? We need to know God as creator. God, wonderful and awesome in power. We sing about it this morning. And yet, like Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. I call you friends. That is the wonder of the habitation of God, where God can dwell with us. Both at a distance, but right in the midst. Two things brought together. Isn't it strange, really, that we can be complete in our incompleteness? And you say, well, intelligence and wisdom, doesn't, that's not possible. But, you know, we can be discontented while contented as well. We can be contented and have peace in Jesus, and yet we want more. Like the illustration went on to say, there's more beyond. Paul talks like this in his letter. You know, you come to know Jesus, but there's more and more and more and more and more to know about him. And I believe it was Julian who said some time ago, and maybe one or two others at times too, you can have as much as God as you want. You can have as much as the Holy Spirit as you want. The habitation of God. And that's what Paul's saying here. Now I know I've pinched a few verses from last week. In its simplest form, there are two halves to this letter. And I just want to refer to that to see just where we're going. Paul has been explaining in chapters 1, 2, and 3 the wonder and the greatness and the majesty of the church and of God's people being joined together and to knowing his power in their midst. 
But we're also looking at the bigger picture. And at the end of chapter 3, Paul concludes what he's been saying. And I want us to read this together. He concludes that in verse 20 of chapter 3. This is the conclusion of the first half. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's a sort of a conclusion. And it says, with all this understanding of the church, he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. There's so much more beyond, isn't there? Our God is greater than we begin to understand. The possibilities for us have become greater. The possibilities for this world in Jesus are so much greater than we can ever imagine or think. And so he begins chapter 4, and just look at this. As prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So there's a change here. All this greatness is for your benefit. And this is Paul's punch. I urge you then to live a life worthy of the calling by which you have been called. So it changes there. So this is where he's going. That's the bigger picture. The verses we read this morning haven't come to the conclusion yet, but that's where they're going. Paul's explaining the bigger picture this wonderful position you're in, the wonderful body you belong to, the great things God is going to do now and for eternity, you're part of. But it means there's got to be changes. Changes in your lives. And when Paul comes to it, he's talking about lifestyle changes, church order changes, spiritual warfare changes, and things which Christians can live by as a result of who they are and what God has brought them into. So that's, that's where we go. But I just want to come back to the verse 10 in chapter 3. For the focus on this for a while. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. His intent. God is intentional about what he's doing in the world. You may not think it, but God has a plan and a purpose. We're either part of that plan or we're not part of that plan. We have that choice. And that's the thing about our world God has given us a choice, which, what we live by and who we serve, and who we serve. That's our choice, and God's never taken that choice away. You might not agree with me, but I just want to entitle this the greatest test story that's ever been told. You might be squirming in your seat saying, don't talk rubbish, man. You might in your mind saying, I don't agree with that, but I don't care whether you're disturbed or troubled. I just want to say this as a point of truth this morning. 
to declare what God is doing. The story about Jesus and his love, how he's provided salvation, how he's building his church, how he's going to conclude for all things internally is the greatest story ever told. They've taken a vote on the internet about what is the greatest story ever told. Top of the list, what's top of the list then? Someone says Star Wars. More than what? War and Peace? No. Batman. The greatest story ever told, top of the votes, is Batman. But I just want to say, it's my declaration out of the Bible, no more than that. The story of Jesus and his love is the greatest story ever told. You might not have come to realise that yet. What the Bible is saying is that one day everyone will realise it. Greatest story ever told. And so Paul begins, for this reason, what God is doing, for this reason. Because you've now become a habitation for God, you know, and I've become a servant of this gospel, says Paul, in prison. <laughs> Do you notice how we read through those words? There's a genre in Paul's spirit here. Here's a man imprisoned, and he's telling people from prison not to be discouraged because he's in prison. Do you see that there's something within Paul? And I, I read through it, I saw here's a man who's saying, in effect, I can't contain myself as I'm telling you this. It's so wonderful, and it's so glorious. But the point about it is, Paul was not a victim to his circumstances because he knew a God that would be with him in his circumstances. And it's very easy for us to become a victim of circumstances in life. But you know, Paul's talking about a power we have within us to not be victims in our circumstances. I'd say to you this morning that what we have in Jesus it's so wonderful that he will help us in any situation whatsoever. He will help us through. There's no brick wall. God will show us a way. The Bible says, God will not bring things upon you that are not too difficult for you to handle, but he'll, he'll give, find you, he'll show you a way. He will show you a way. We sing about Jesus rising from the dead. And Paul refers to this. He said, I want you people to see that what you have in Jesus is just as great as it was when Jesus rose from the dead. It's the power over death, the power over death situations, the power over things that we can't handle, financial situations, family problems, all sorts of difficulties. God comes with us and he goes through them in these situations. So Paul says, I'm a prisoner here, but he wasn't a prisoner in his spirit. There was a release within him. And he's talking to these people like this. He said, I don't want you to be discouraged or turned away because I'm in prison for you. God's intention in the world is something very great. So what is this manifold wisdom of God that should be mine to the rulers and authorities? The word means variegated, manifold wisdom. And it has... I think Paul had this mind as he was speaking. He wanted to give some 
some weight to what he was saying. And um, the word means variegated, and it was used, it's only used once in the New Testament. It makes it unique, doesn't it? But it has a counterpart in the Hebrew. That was written in the Greek. In the Hebrew, he was referring to the story of Joseph and how because his father loved him, he gave him a coat of many colours. Something you could see in the distance. You know? So his brothers could see him coming. But why did his father give him this coat? Because he loved him. In the story of Joseph, there is a prophetic statement, or prophetic, it's a prophetic story about Jesus. Because of lots of similar things happened to Joseph in his life, were also happened to Jesus in his life. His brothers hated him. There was no real reason for it. His father showed him singular and distinguishable love apart from his other parts of the family. He sort of separated him down. But also Joseph had dreams about his future. He, was, he knew something that was going to happen in the future was going to set him apart from other people. And so the story of Joseph is that. But also in Joseph's life, through all sorts of difficulties and sufferings, God brought him through to actually bless the land of Egypt and people beyond Egypt as well. God used him to bless. And John reminded us last week that in Abraham, all the nations of the world, through his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so we're drawn into that, what God's doing in the earth. Through the church, the manifold wisdom shall be made known. That's God's intent. And it means that the church is going to be so wonderfully beautiful, diverse, and large. With things that we can't understand, really. That's how the church is going to be. God, Through the church, God is going to demonstrate his wisdom in the earth. Not only to the people but also to the heavenly realms. You know, Job, uh, he, he, he um, said some things which were recorded for us. And when, God, when Paul is talking here, that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So read, Job said this, well, God said to Job, he said, Job, were you there at creation when the angels sang for joy. Were you there? Well, Job wasn't there, no. But what happened then when God created the world and demonstrated his beauty, his glory, his majesty in creation, the angels sang for joy. Paul sang, you know, when God brought his church to be born and growing in Jesus, this is when the angels can sing again. This is when the angels can sing again. All the mess in the world, all the horribleness can be brought right in Jesus. The angels start to sing again. I think it's Peter who tells us that, that what's happening in the church, the angels actually are getting interested now, again, in what God's doing. The angels sang for joy. So in the heavenly realms... What God is doing through his church is so wonderful and so great. It's the greatest story ever told.
greatest story ever told. So where are we this morning? Do we feel part of that? We go on from verse 10, we read this. That what he's doing is according to his, verse 11, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. There are many people suffering in the world today. There are many Christians suffering today because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They're willing to take that suffering because of him. And we're part of that church. Jesus said, probably we would. Paul knows that part of the course of an apostle was to be involved in suffering. That's why he was in prison and his death too. And Paul was saying to these people, you know, your God is too small. My God is beyond the limits. My God is full of infinite promise and full of promise. Your God is too limited. My God is beyond the limits and he's in prison with me. Your God is so big and vast, too distant does God seem too distant this morning maybe he does but for some people God is too distant which brings us back to the point I said earlier you know friend of God he can be known with childlike faith with childlike faith he can be known. God wants to know you. He's a sort of person. He's the one that well, he wants to come to you. It's we who have to make the choice. We who have to make the first step to say, yeah, I want to be part of this program. I want to be part of this thing that God's doing in the earth. We will never make it by wisdom. I tried to have a little illustration as to what God is doing. And um, my mind went to water, Ox- hydrogen and oxygen, two things which would catch fire very easily, and yet together, it's almost an absurdity, isn't it? Two things that catch fire when brought together put fire out. There's a unique, miraculous power in water that we can't understand or we can't change. And it's very similar to what God has done, bringing Jew and Gentile together, bringing our understanding of God together in awe, but also in friendship. To know know that uh, we can be complete in our incompleteness. When we become believers in Jesus Christ, we're made perfect, and yet we're not perfect in a sense. Our lives don't live as if we're perfect, but in Jesus we're made perfect. That's another absurdity. And so water gives us that sort of illustration. God brings two things together. The same power that can be demonstrated in making good relationships and peoples is all part of God's plan. 
You know, with broken relationships, God can mend them. In churches, God can do that. He can mend them. Where there's hate, God can bring love. Where there's no peace, he can bring it. He can bring people together. And I just want to read to you a verse from Revelation. As we look to the future, and we look to conclusion, because God is, has the power to conclude all things, and that's what will happen. God will conclude what's happening in this earth. Revelation 7 and verse 9, we look to the future. We look to the time when God wraps things up and he brings out the conclusion. And it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. word is used for Jesus there. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around on the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory, and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders asked me, Who are these in white robes? Who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they're before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. And never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's not a conclusion to what God is doing. Are we part of that? Or are we not part of that? What God is doing. And he said one more phrase before we close. God, it is recorded in Revelation. I will be their God and they will be my people. The wonderful reunion that God has that was intended in the first place when God used to come down to the cool of the day and commune. <laughs> he didn't have all of Adam's time, but it's a part of his life. But God was involved in it. And what's been spoiled by sin in this world, God is at the process of making good. So we had in our song today, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, the glorious things that God has prepared for those that love him. We don't know that. Not fully anyway. But we know that God's, he's on the throne. He's got it in control. He will work it out. And we're actually given the choice whether we're part of that 
or whether we're not part of that. The choice is yours. God doesn't force things upon us. He beckons, and we take a step. And he beckons again, and we take another step. And then he beckons again until finally the deal is done. We said, yes, Lord Jesus, I want you to be my saviour. I know you're the head of the church. I know you're the coming king. I know you're the one who's on the throne and will be there forever and ever and ever. (coughs) Choice. The choice is yours. And that's where God leaves it with us. I just want to pray. Father, I thank you for the wonder of knowing you. Lord, we've been out of worship you this morning and what a privilege that is. But I thank you, Lord, that you want to go home with me this morning. (laughs) You want to be part of my family and part of my life, part of my work this week because you want to be my God and you want me to be your person, be part of the people that belong to you. I want to thank you for the church. All my life, Lord, I've known it to be the most wonderful thing that you're doing in the earth. Thank you so much. Lord Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Thank you, Lord. Amen.